0: Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of Slate and New York Times and such places. Hello. And we are going to be talking about Sam Bankman-Fried this week. We've been waiting for news, and news has happened. We're going to talk about what has been going on at the Southern District of New York in his criminal trial. We are going to talk about the Birkenstock IPO. We are going to talk about sweaters and why they're just not as good as they used to be. We have a whole Slate Plus segment on the FDIC's latest ad campaign. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Okay, so it was a big week in the Sam Bankman Freed trial he is being criminally prosecuted in the southern district of new york he faces i don't know how many decades in jail if he gets convicted which everyone thinks he will be and emily the big news of the week and we haven't been talking about this trial very much because we've been waiting for news to come out of the trial as opposed to just like you know Wishing on about Sam Bankman-Fried. And this week we had news coming out of the trial, right? Because we had the CEO of Alameda, the sort of sister hedge fund, take the stand and just, well, what happened?
1: I mean, so before Carolyn Ellison took the stand this past week in the Sam Bankman-Fried trial, there was at least one juror who was falling asleep, right? <laughs> we were hearing like, this is boring, da-da-da. Ellison comes in and just changes everything. I mean, her testimony was, by all accounts, pretty devastating and and riveting. And I don't think any of the jurors fell asleep during it. She just really made Sam Bankman Fried look bad. She very clearly painted him as the one in charge. He knew what was happening, which was that FTX money, customer funds, were um, being taken by Alameda and used. I'm not totally clear used to do what make bad bets and investments used by employees for stuff. I don't know. Um, She, she teared up. She talked about how Sam Bankman's like look is very intentional and how he thought his hair got him better bonuses back when he, they were at Jane street (laughs) capital together about how they forego using luxury cars and bought a Corolla and a Civic so that they, you know, had to cultivate their image. She talked about his, what is it? His effect, not his effective altruism, but his oh, his utilitarian mindset where it was like doing good or evil doesn't really matter. It's all about the end results. Which is which um, is
0: not that far from EA, to be clear. Like it's the the idea behind effective altruism is you are measured by the change you make to the world and whether the change is positive or negative and if you um you know save billions of lives then that change is positive even if you had to do it by lying and cheating and stealing right, um, right. so yeah, so like there the, is the there is a, a kind of overlap there with ea and and i think part of what she part of her testimony um like, EA was was definitely very damaged by the whole implosion of FTX because Sam reed was, like, the, the poster child of the movement. Um, but this this made it look even worse in, insofar as his whole shtick of, you know, I only have a pair of shorts and a pair of T-shirts and I drive a Corolla and, like, every last penny I make is going to, you know, go make the world a better place... Um, became even more obviously just a shtick. And, mm-hmm. you know, he kind of lost track of how many $30 million apartments he owned and, and how he was flying private and all the rest of it. And you're like, okay, yeah. So, you know, he understood that things like his claim to be giving everything away, things like his hair, um, you know, were all tools to increase his, you know, expected value because they attracted Mm -hmm. funders and good press and all the rest of it.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't even tell you all of the details from her testimony that have come out. I mean, it was really just blockbuster blockbuster stuff yeah in um, terms
0: of in terms of the criminal case because he's not being accused of being a bad effective altruist um (laughs) in terms of the criminal case the the most damning thing was this insane spreadsheet showing and and really like uh,
2: spreadsheets
0: multiple (laughs) yeah well it's a single spreadsheet with eight different tabs (laughs) and there's one tab shows ftx's balance sheet Kind of, sort of, in a very
2: quasi balance qua- sheet. It's,
0: it's it's a bunch of numbers, and it kind of vaguely claims to be a balance sheet. But it, it's the it's the sheet that um, precipitated the downfall of FTX when it became public, because people realized that what he was claiming to be assets was just a whole bunch of you know shit coins called FTT, which he could make you know magic out of thin air, and that they weren't real assets at all. Um, But the really damning thing was not the contents of the balance sheet so much as it was the fact that there were seven different, seven extra tabs called Alt One through Alt Seven, and each tab shows a different balance sheet. And Sam then just sort of tabs between them. This spreadsheet is is compiled is is created by Caroline Ellison, and then Sam Bankman-Fried looks at all eight versions of the balance sheet, all of which curiously show the same. Net asset value, like if you subtract the liabilities from the assets, it always comes to exactly the same six billion dollars. Um, but he he looks at these eight very different balance sheets. He goes. I want that one. I want Alt-7. You know, you've had the main one. You've tried Alt-1. You've tried Alt-2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. None of them have been good enough. And then eventually she comes up with Alt-7. He's like, that one, that's the one I want to show to investors.
2: Well, I think it's also important to note the difference between Alt-7 and, you know, the base quasi-balance sheet that they created originally that Ellison says was the most reflective of what was actually happening. Um, you know what what he's in trouble for is borrowing customer deposits from FTX and siphoning it to Alameda.
0: and, and, and by the and we, we have to put the word borrowing here in massive scare quotes because yes. there was yes. no way that Alameda was ever going to be able to pay that money back.
2: Yeah. And so when uh, when the crypto implosion or, or you know one of the crypto implosions happened, the lenders wanted their money back. Alameda didn't have it. And so they decided that they were going to treat the customer deposits at FTX as kind of their reserve fund, and they just siphoned that money over to Alameda.
0: Which, actually, weirdly enough, it, it was always in Alameda in the first place um, because FTX didn't have a bank account. Here we have this you know, massive crypto exchange, which is valued at $40 billion by Silicon Valley or something, but it doesn't have a bank account. And so whenever anyone put money into their FTX account, it turns out what they were actually doing is they were wiring it to Alameda rather than to FTX. And so Alameda was just sitting on that money and then losing it in the crypto winter. And meanwhile, all of FTX's customers are told that that money is their money that is in their FTX bank account. Um, and this is just... a. Uh, Clear fraud.
2: Yeah, and there was some damning testimony from Gary Wang, who had been a co-founder, it was a you know close friend of SBF's, I think from MIT, where he explained how this happened. If you had an FTX account, their system was you know, was built so that you couldn't overdraw it. And so he created an exception for Alameda. It was literally a piece of code that said allow negative. So that Alameda could pull money.
0: Yeah, for, it started off as like, a, a lo- you know, the idea was, and, and there, there was this um, episode of Odd Lots, which many listeners will listen to. It's a good financial podcast, where Sam free talked to Matt Levine. And what he said was, we treat Alameda just like we treat any other customer of FTX. Alameda is just a customer of FTX and it plays by the same rules. And that was a complete <laughs> lie. Um, no other uh, Every other customer of FTX would get liquidated if their positions went against them and they couldn't meet a margin call. Alameda never got liquidated. And the amount of Um, sort of free money that FTX would allow Alameda to operate with, started off at about $400 million, I think, then it went up to a billion and then a couple of billion, and eventually ended up at $65 billion. They just basically said, like, you have an unlimited credit line because if you need any money, you are us and we are you. And the distinction between FTX and Alameda, which was always slightly fictional, um... Was just eradicated it completely.
1: Yeah, and we should say, I mean, it, the first two weeks of the trial, this is the prosecution putting on its case. The defense hasn't it hasn't had a chance yet, I suppose. But well, the
0: defense has been so cross-examining far, accounts, the witnesses and has not really done anything right. to destroy their credibility or to give the jurors any particular reason to believe that what they said isn't entirely true.
1: I was getting there. Ah. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, we had heard the defense was going to say, you know, SBF was kind of this hapless kid and he kind of didn't know what was happening. We had heard the defense was going to say, um, this is really Carolyn Ellison's doing. She's the mastermind. She didn't hedge enough or something, but none of those arguments are really coming through at all. And they don't, and, and her testimony was so devastating that to make those arguments is just seems absurd. I mean, their closer on Thursday was this audio tape of Ellison talking to staff and saying, like, yeah, we've been using customer funds from FTX, and it was Sam's idea. Like, they have audio on that. Um, yeah, it's, it just, it's, she, I don't know how to defend I mean defend to, and to be clear,
0: them. like, she's not claiming to be some innocent here. She has pleaded guilty uh, to a bunch of crimes which collectively, if she doesn't get lenience, could put her in jail for the rest of her life.
2: Yeah, right. She also said when she was on the stand that she, whenever uh, all of this got discovered, that she felt some relief because it was making her incredibly stressed out to perpetuate the gun. It's,
0: it's, it's stressful to commit <laughs> crimes every day. Well,
2: unless you're a nihilist, you know, and, and I think uh, maybe SBF is because his, his sort of interpretation of utilitarianism is so extreme that, uh, you know, she said on the stand that um, his excuse for it was... Uh, lying and cheating don't really fit into the framework of utilitarianism, and that's that's sort of a warped understanding of it to begin with. But he doesn't seem to have any remorse. So.
0: Right, and those I, I haven't read the whole Michael Lewis book, but I have read the excerpt that ran in the Washington Post, and that was really interesting in the way that he went he went into quite a lot of detail about all of the meetings that SP that Sam Mackman Fried would set up and then just not turn up to. And the the way in which no one really knew where he was or what he wanted to do, you know, he would tell his assistant, I think there's a 60% chance I'm going to be in Dallas tomorrow. And she'd be like, how do I buy 60% of an air ticket? How do I book 60% of a hotel? Um, and or he would just say, "Yeah, I'll come along to the, you know, World Economic Forum in Davos." And then, like that morning, he'd be like, "You know what? I'm not in Davos. I'm in the Bahamas. I'm not turning up." And they'd have to sort of scramble to try and find someone else. Um, so he does seem to be missing any sense of like shame, ethics, morals, anything like that.
2: Yeah, well, this is also, you know, when when he when it comes time for him to testify, if he's going to. Uh, he's already sort of esta- – it's already been established that he's willing to lie. He doesn't really have, you know, any any sense of conscience about that. Um, I read Zeke Fox's book, Number Go Up, which is about crypto. And the first two lines of the book are, I'm not going to lie, Sam Bankman-Fried told me. <laughs> this was a lie.
0: Yeah. And, and I think uh, – and
2: this was before the Lewis book came out. This was before, you know, this book came out, I think, uh, maybe a month ago. Um but it's it's it surprised me people who registered that there was something a little off about him, and the people who didn't i well I'm, no i think
0: I think everyone registered that there was something off about him, but then some people a lot of people registered that in a positive way um you know that he was like this oddball genius billionaire who was going to save the planet and then a, there were definitely a bunch of people some people who um registered it in a negative way. Um, One of the things we find out in the Michael Lewis book is that a lot of them are his colleagues who, you know, wind up quitting when he decides that he wants to, you know, bribe a Chinese official $150 million to get his money back or something like that. Um, But his public persona was generally received positively, I I think partly because the people in the crypto world were also absolutely terrible. But in comparison, he looked less terrible. Yeah,
2: he looked less, less sociopathic.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, he did say at one point, according to Ellison's testimony, he, she was talking about like where he saw this all going. And, he, and she was like, where do you see this all ending? He said, I want to be president. And she's like, president of what? <laughs> and he said, president <laughs> of the United States. And that is such an EA ambition. You know, it is well understood in philanthropic circles that the amount of good you can do in the world, the amount you can change the world, the amount you can influence the world um, is just orders of magnitude greater if you are president of the United States than it is even if you have like a $100 billion or a trillion dollars. It's
2: also a very convenient argument to make to say that, you know, actually the best way I can do good in the world is to accumulate as much money and power as possible. No,
0: totally. And and it, there is something incredibly bloodless. And, you know, if he really is missing that switch, where he, he really does feel no sort of shame or remorse or sense of ethics or anything like that, and I think this is slowly becoming clear, then you can see what was attractive in effective altruism, right? Because it's this very sort of bloodless... And philosophy. Self-serving, kind of. I mean, it doesn't need to be self-serving, right? There's nothing inherently self-serving about EA, but it attracts that kind of person because it's not based on um, any kind of like fundamental morality. It's just it's, it's just numbers. It's just like try and try and maximize this number, and then, and then that's exactly what he did his whole life, right? He was he was always in that sort of maximize the number game that was always the way he was trying to do it and he managed to persuade himself that maximizing one number which was like his net worth was going to um, help him maximize the other number which was like the amount of good he did in the world and then he would start doing things like talk you know about buying the island of Nauru or something and just having his own country that he ran because it, it was all it was all this aligned thing where the more power and money and influence you have the better you are making the world which of course is deranged
1: it's just it just seems like nonsense where's the evidence of of what he what good he wanted to do it's totally i don't understand well, he, he, what he he wanted to he, he to wanted be done to
0: bribe donald trump to not run for president
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay that's that's the one example
2: then like but it's a classic it's a
0: classic example of you know, doing something illegal um, to make the world a better place, like, because he doesn't care about whether it's legal or not.
2: Well, I find it funny that, you know, a lot of the EA community or people, the same people who would brag about not having liberal arts degrees throw around the term utilitarian in a way that would make Jeremy Bentham roll over in his grave. because they, they behave like uh, utilitarian thought is somehow divorced from morality entirely, and it's just not. So it, it seems like another kind of reconstruction of uh, a framework that works for people like SBF who want some kind of justification for what they're doing when it really just amounts to hoarding wealth and power.
0: Yeah, and it does remind me in a weird way of like, you know, as, as a financial journalist, I spent far too much time, far too many hours of my life on the phone to... um hedge fund managers and their PR people and their first rhetorical move they always pull is like I know you think we're these like rapacious billionaires but really if you think about it the people we're investing money for are the firefighters and the teachers. And and if we don't maximize our returns, then that's just going to really hurt the pensions of the long-suffering public servants. And you're like, oh, my God, really? Are you going there?
2: I will say I've never heard – I've never seen a private equity guy that say with a straight face, I, I took this job because I want to make the world a better place. And that yeah. is the kind of rhetoric that you get from crypto people sometimes. And,
0: and from hedge funds. I'm very much oh, no. from hedge funds.
2: <laughs>
1: There's interesting. There's two things I would hope to to ask you guys about. The first, I guess, the big picture one is like, does this trial actually matter to crypto or does it not matter that it doesn't matter? Like, in other words, Madoff wound up for a time and we talked about on the Madoff episode, like he was kind of like the poster boy for the financial crisis, even though like. He didn't do mortgage-backed securities or liar loans or anything that really caused, like, that that meltdown. But he became associated with it. So, SBF, this trial, does it mean something in crypto? 100%, or? yes. I think
0: like, so. Because, you know, one of the other things that came out in recent weeks is that, you know, SBF paid Tom Brady $55 million for 20 hours work, you know? that people realized that when they were sort of thinking that crypto was cool because Tom Brady was, you know, talking it up, Tom Brady was not talking it up because he believed in crypto. Tom Brady was talking it up because he was being paid $55 million to talk it up. And on some level, people knew that obviously he's a paid spokesman, he's being paid. But there's also that's how advertising works is that, you know, on Mm -hmm. some level, people think it's real. And The idea very much was, before FTX imploded, that FTX were the good crypto guys, right? And Mm -hmm. one of the things that SBF himself used to do all the time is point to the rest of crypto in general and to Binance and CZ in particular and say, like, those are the bad guys. We're the good guys. We are the ethical guys. We are the people who want to be regulated and who are happy to talk to lawmakers and, you know, want to embrace... Civil society and regulation, and when that all imploded, when it turned out that he was the most sociopathic liar of them all, there was nowhere in the cryptoverse that you could sort of point to and say, "Well, this place is is like normal and trusted." Um, yeah. You can't like crypto is based on mistrust, but you can't create a financial institution without people trusting someone. And and FTX was high up on the list of places that people trusted. Um, Gemini was trusted. Genesis was trusted. Binance was kind of not really trusted, but people used it anyway. Um, and all of those places just, you know, that trust has gone. And, and what that means is that people aren't going to use crypto for anything beyond purest speculation with extreme... Um, Weariness when it comes to counterparty risk, and that in turn means that it will have no utility ever. So it matters. So it
1: matters.
2: I think it also matters <laughs> even for the speculators because it's it's sort of shown a light on uh, the, the problem of whether these companies have the collateral that they say they have. Um, you know, and this is a problem even for the stablecoins. You know, Tether still not totally clear
0: it's, 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 it's <laughs> as unclear as ever like yeah i think i think circle and the usd c coin i think is pretty transparent about the the backing it has for that stable coin but yeah all of crypto is based on these weird shifting sands and there's no point to even care about it unless you can do something with it and i think that the need or desire to do anything with it has never been lower But let's talk about good old-fashioned normal dollar finance because we had a fun, interesting IPO this week. Elizabeth, um, how many pairs of Birkenstocks do you own?
2: One. Historically, I think I've owned three.
0: (laughs) Birkenstock went public this week and it did that thing that IPOs aren't supposed to do, which is that it went down um, rather than up. (laughs) Um, Emily... Is this a sign of how genius Birkenstock is? Because they managed to raise money at higher than at a higher price per share. than it turns out people were really willing to pay, and so they managed to con the markets and get one over on the markets. And well done, Birkenstock. Or is this just a complete fiasco? Um,
1: is there an option C? Feeling? Like? What would option C, C be? It would be like we'll see. It's been two days. Facebook's IPO was a disaster, and it, was it worked a disaster. out okay. I
0: mean, yeah. yeah.
1: So, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Only time will tell. Facebook's, what fi- I do Facebook's know-
0: IPO, I, I will say, was a disaster mostly because the banks just completely screwed it up. I'm not, I haven't seen a lot of finger-pointing in the wake of the Birkenstock IPO about the banks really screwed it up so much as it was just like, yeah, we thought there was a bunch of demand out there. It was oversubscribed technically, but it turned out to be not real demand. And then when it opened, it turned out no one really wanted to stock.
1: I mean, they should have known better. I think there were so many analysts leading up to the IPO. There was an FT piece basically saying like, typically when a shoe company goes public, it doesn't do all that well. There's like a lot of examples. There's there's Crocs, there's Doc Martens, there's Allbirds, like they all went public, and they haven't really done much. And Birkenstock kind of does feel like it fits there. Um, so I, I think they were being just too optimistic and ambitious in the in the pricing.
0: Well, they, they priced towards the lower end of the announced range. They priced at $46 a share, right? Mm-hmm. Which was, they, they said they would price you know, maybe as high as 49. In fact, they priced at 46. They were relatively unaggressive in terms of the price. It didn't seem like a particularly aggressive pricing. Um, The very first trade was at 41, which is a long way south of 46. Mm -hmm. And then as we're recording this on Friday morning, the price is like 36. It is literally Mm. $10 below the IPO price, and that is within three days. It's uh, two and a half days. It's it's um it's a very very bad down into the right chart stock chart and yeah that that just I don't quite understand I don't think you can explain it away by saying well it's you know shoes and there isn't AI buzz around shoes
2: yeah I think it's more you know the the Allbirds IPO didn't do terribly well either but this this seems worse and I wonder if it's because when people have been talking about Birkenstocks, at least in the fashion press, they kind of don't know where to put it. Like They, they understand that historically, it's a shoe that appeals to uh, older women. It's, it's got an orthopedic soul. But they've also done collaborations with high-end luxury brands recently, and those have been very high profile, some of which they weren't even paying for. Um, Phoebe Philo did a Birkenstock. On the runway that had it was lined with fur, and that suddenly drove up demand from a very small cohort of fashion-oriented people. So I wonder if part of it might be um, just the less sophisticated investors in the market who don't really cover retail and haven't dug into the finances, thinking of Birkenstock as a trendy brand in a way that it just doesn't show up in the numbers.
0: I, I think I think you you've definitely hit on something there that there are basically two ways of thinking about birkenstock one is that it is this old family-run company the birkenstock company in germany which makes the same shoes that it has done for 150 years and will continue to make the same shoes and they're perfectly good shoes and certain people like them and they will continue to buy them and they can sell them at a nice healthy profit and they can make a whole bunch of money and who doesn't like a business like that um the other way, the other way of looking at it is it was this kind of fractured company with a whole bunch of different arms of the Birkenstock family all bickering with each other the whole time making shoes in different ways in different factories and not really having any big global strategy and now you know it got it got purchased by this private equity company that was much more coherent strategically did and, and started making it into a proper global brand with all of the sort of fashion tie-ins that, um, that the company is such a thing and that has potential for real growth, um, partly because, you know, it might become cool because of fashion, partly because it might be able to branch out into more, you know, high-end, expensive kind of shoes. Who knows? But, like, it, it is this storied brand, and if you look at, say, the watch world, it is entirely possible to resuscitate old brands and historic brands and make them fresh and new and grow. And so the real question I think is, are you buying a company that has been doing the same thing for a hundred years and will continue to do the same thing for a hundred years? Or are you buying a company that wants growth and is you know, and there's a growth story there. And I think what's happened is that the market has decided that really it's the former rather than the latter. That like, you know, there's a big world of Birkenstock bias out there, but it's not growing particularly much. And that would have been great a year ago, or 18 months ago. Um, everyone wanted, you know, predictable, s- chunky cash flows. But now, in this, like, high interest rate environment, those cash flows are worth much less than they used to be. And I think that's the the problem that Birkenstock is running into is that people just aren't valuing? You know, we know that Birkenstock is going to be selling millions of pairs of shoes in 2075, and 18 months ago, those millions of pairs of shoes in 2075 would show up in the share price in the way they just don't anymore.
1: And I'm worried about Birkenstock because I love Birkenstocks. I've had, I've been buying them for even before I was an older woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was wearing them when I was. I 10. wore them in high school. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm worried that going public, like, and this is like a theme I feel like Felix likes to get into every now and then, but it it doesn't have to, it's not a high growth kind of company. It's like a, it's a a family business, even though it's not a family business anymore, it has a specific, makes the shoes in Germany and it's kind of limited in how many shoes it can produce. And you could easily see like public, you know, if it's now it's a public company, there's going to be pressure to grow. Maybe they're going to start making the shoes and China or overseas or something, the quality is going to deteriorate. They're going to wind up in the same boat as, um, I remember like Crocs, when Crocs got really popular and then they've been making all different kinds of, oh no, it was Uggs. Oh my God, don't get me started on Uggs. And then they started making all these like weird and like not quality Uggs. And, you know, you just kind of worry that going public is not even in the interest it's not in the interest of Birkenstock Yeah, exactly. This,
0: this is the argument I used to have with Anna Shemansky all the time, right, where I'd be like, you can right. have a perfectly good company that just makes money year in and year out, yeah. and it it's great. Steady. And Anna would be like, well, no, it has to grow. And I'd be like, why does it have to grow? And she's like, because it's a public company. It needs to grow, and you, you, the share price needs to go up because if the right. if the share price doesn't go up, why would anyone buy the shares? And that was, you know, we, we'd have that uh, debate over and over again, and I think this, you're absolutely right that, in in a world of Birkenstocks and Uggs and stuff, you really need to decide which one you're going to try and do. Uggs, by the way, is the worst brand in the world. I just need to come in. I come out and say this because um, I haven't had an Uggs rant in a while, and every so often I need I need to have an Uggs rant. Ugg. The name of the company is actually Ugg Australia, <laughs> um, and it is named after the type of boot that was very popular in Australia for a while on you know sh- um, sheep farms. And it was just like the generic name that people used for those kind of boots. Um, they trademarked that name, and a whole bunch of Australian companies um, who were making these boots to relatively high standards in Australia wound up getting cease and desist letters and lots of nasty grams and being accused of trademark violation While Ugg Australia, which is the name of the company, was going around the world saying, it's only a genuine Ugg Australia boot if it's made in China. (laughs) And they made all of their boots in China to much lower standards and were just basically trademark trolls and we hate them.
2: Well, it's funny because wow. they fought so hard for that name because I think of Ugg as the sound I make whenever I see those things in the <laughs> shoe store because they're they're also just now hideous and kind of... Well,
0: that that's, is what the name stands for, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they're called Ugg boots because they're ugly.
1: You guys, I'm wearing Uggs right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was excited because it got cold and I could put on my Uggs and sweaters. Sweaters. Okay, so should we
0: segue here? Because um, another company that did this um if we're if we're in the world of antipodean fashion which is truly an oxymoron if there ever was one um there was a new zealand company by the name of icebreaker which became very famous at least in new zealand and among sort of like outdoorsy types for making merino wool performance gear so they'd make these great t-shirts and sweaters and socks and what have you out of 100 percent merino wool and the wool would all come from new zealand sheep and um they even invented this amazing thing long before you know blockchain um called the bar code spelled b-a-a-a where um <laughs> where you would you would get like a little uh number or code in your t-shirt and you could look it up on the icebreaker website and you could trace it back to exactly like which sheep your t-shirt came (laughs) from which was the cutest i mean it was great branding but then as with all such things um you know it got acquired and then the manufacturing moved to china And then, you know, immediately all of that whole barcode thing disappeared. No one knew where the wool was coming from. Um, The goods started becoming less and less 100% merino wool and more and more like a mixture of merino wool and various bits of plastic. And um, Amanda Mull has this wonderful piece in The Atlantic basically saying, this is not just icebreaker. This is all of global fashion has done this sort of move away from natural fibers towards much um, more easily tractable mixes and the quality of sweaters in particular has just plunged over the past 20 years
2: yeah, I'm wearing a sweater today that I bought last week at what I thought was a suspiciously low price point because it's 100% cashmere and I bought it for 138 bucks from J Crew. And I should mention that it's it's a sort of blinding color of fuchsia.
0: It's 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 very close to official Barbie pink.
2: Yeah. It's very Barbie. Yeah. It's it's neon almost. Mm-hmm. Uh so I, I, you know, googled some of the, the, there's a tag on it that says the good cashmere standard. And when I Googled that, it's just a sustainability standard. But in order for something to be cashmere, it, it or to say it's 100% cashmere, it does have to meet certain standards. And so I was trying to figure out why the sweater was so, you know, was priced so low. And, and what I sort of landed on is, number one, there's huge demand for cashmere now, so more cashmere farmers, and you can just get it a little bit cheaper. But the other thing is, uh, it's the way that it's made. It's um, machine knit, it's one ply, it's not necessarily going to keep you warm. It's just fluffy and, and it feels soft.
0: Pe- people do love to buy things that say that they're cashmere, even if it doesn't feel any better than any normal, any other sweater. Like Uniqlo is. Was- very early to this trend. Like 10 years ago, they would start selling these cashmere sweaters for 50 bucks and everyone would be like, ooh, it's cashmere. and buy it just because it was cashmere. Um, one of the points that Amanda Mull makes in her piece is that it's almost impossible to test and enforce these rules about you can only say that you're 100% wool if you're 100% wool. Um, you know, it is theoretically true and there's lots of um, you know world trade organization um, rules about this that if you that you have to say exactly what your materials are made of and you if you if you have a bunch of polyester or acrylic or something in your mix you can't say that you're 100% wool um, on the other hand if you do say that you're 100% wool with polyester or acrylic or something in your mix no one's going to find out and no one ever gets prosecuted for that
2: well you I know mean, another factor there is i think fast fashion has changed the way that people think about uh, fashion or, or things that they buy being really durable. If you buy a really high-end cashmere sweater, it, it gets better with age. It, it retains its shape. It doesn't peel very much. And people will buy those because you can go and, you know, if you do get a hole in a nice cashmere sweater, you can go to, you know, good uh, seamstress and, and have it repaired. But people are not used to doing that anymore. They're used to just buying new stuff. And so I I also think maybe the the demand for very high-end products that are designed to be worn for years and repeatedly repaired, people just don't know how to do that anymore.
1: Yeah, there's just so much. I mean, her story was really good at starting back in 2005. There was some trade agreement that expired that sort of started a gold rush to the bottom, where um, the idea was to make clothes as cheaply as possible, use the cheapest labor use the most efficient methods of manufacturing to come up with the sweaters. So we don't have, um, the sweaters are very simple now. Like Elizabeth was saying, it's one ply it's, you know, there's no decoration really. It's very, it's, it's cheap. And, and there's no, people don't, aren't buying clothes now to last. Um, our producer, Patrick Fort shared this amazing story from a 1973 New York times article, where um all these men in the clothing industry were talking about how clothes today aren't as good as they used to be and i mean <laughs> they were talking about things like clothes don't wear like they used to you used to be able to to really wear a piece people would buy clothes to last and i don't really think that happens anymore because clothes are so cheap you know for all we've spoken about inflation the price of a sweater or a pair of jeans has n- not budged really
0: and it's not even that they're cheap like there was this viral tweet comparing the chunky sweater that billy crystal mm. wore in when harry met sally to you know the equivalent chunky chunky sweater today which is a not as chunky but b is 400 dollars from ralph Lauren, which is not right. cheap
1: right and yeah. but
0: like even a 400 hundred dollar ralph Lauren sweater is just terrible quality compared to what Billy Crystal's character in When Harry Met Sally was wearing. And remember, he was like an impecunious grad student.
1: But I will say this, just so to, to be a little contrarian, like, it's nice that you can put your sweaters in the washing machine and even in the dryer. And <laughs> Don't put cashmere don't in the time. washing machine, people. Please. I don't have time to go to the dry cleaner. And most people don't go, go to the dry cleaner or to hand wash a sweater. Like, no one's doing any of that stuff anymore. And like... That's great. Yeah, no, think, you, 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 that's you realize, you realize that what
0: you're actually what you're actually <laughs> doing, Emily, and I'm not sure if you realize yes, this Felix. is you're basking in a privilege that many, many people didn't have back when that New York Times um article was published in nineteen seventy-four, which is I own my own in-home washing machine. And I can do sure. all of my washing by just putting it in a machine in my house, and I do think that 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 the increasing ubiquity of the washing machine and the and the personal washing machine um, did change fashion in that sense. That people, it did become the case that it was just much easier to throw a sweater into the washing machine than it was to take it to a dry cleaner. For me, as a Manhattanite who doesn't have a washing machine in my house, it's actually easier for me to take the sweater to the dry cleaner and it is to put it in the washing machine i do understand that is also a very weird form of rivulet
2: yeah i think also you know i, I do appreciate a good cheap sweater because i have a nice. cat and i've had a newborn <laughs> before and, and you get used to you know being in environments and uh in circumstances where your clothes get destroyed whether you want them to or not so you'd prefer to have a cheap piece destroyed than something nice but i also uh i think when, when we did a slate Money does succession. We talked a little bit about Loro Piana. Yeah. The luxury brand that doesn't have, you know, uh, logos and things the way other luxury brands do. But I think of them mostly for their cashmere. Yeah. Which is uh, super expensive. I just went to the website and filtered by women's clothes. And I can get a cocooning cardigan in a nice cream color for $3,200. Oh, that's reasonable.
0: Yeah. But yeah, you, you never really, like as someone who owns exactly zero Laura Piano um, cardigans, I, you know, you don't, you don't know how good it is. Like one of Amanda Marl's links was to a $3,200 Gucci cardigan, which was 50% polyester. You know, mm. like just because it's expensive doesn't mean it's that great. Um, and there are good, you know, she, she did link to a couple of like Scottish manufacturers who make really good stuff. Um, I will give a shout out here to, um, Lingua Franca. I have a couple of Lingua Franca cashmere sweaters, which are really lovely. And it's not just because they're cashmere, it's because they're really lovely. And I was like, and it was actually kind of revelatory to me that like, you can buy a cashmere sweater that feels amazing rather than a cashmere sweater that doesn't, um, It can be done, but it's becoming more difficult for manufacturers to be able to find the skills in terms of sewers of people who can actually create that stuff. Um,
1: Look, they can't. They don't want to pay people.
0: I mean, part, no, but this is it. Like, partly, partly it's a cost thing, right? Insofar as like a lot of the world is moving to lower cost manufacturing and lower cost materials. But then you have a bunch of people like, you know, Laura Piana or Lingua Franca or whoever who are perfect or Ralph Lauren, right? Who are in principle perfectly happy to charge a high price point for an expensive sweater and to pay what it takes to get the good stuff. But in a world where everyone else is just moving to um, you know, stretch fabrics and whatnot, it just they just can't find. The labor to do that at all. It's not that it's too expensive to do it. It's that it's just there's there's not enough of it, and it's really mm. hard to to find it. Um, I will say, I've you know for my entire life I've been this I've had this weird obsession about natural fibers, and I hate um, you know things that are mixed with with stretch and plastic and that kind of stuff. And for the past few years, I've been buying all my socks from Turkey because it's the only place I've been able to find that sells one hundred percent cotton socks, and this summer, I was kind of running out of all of my like all of my old cotton summer weight trousers were wearing out, and I wanted new ones, and it is now officially impossible to find cotton trousers. they do not exist every yeah, they put
1: the stretch in them now they
0: all have stretch in them now, every single one mm-hmm. of them, all of them, and jeans that are moving in that same direction as well it's It's kind of terrifying to me.
1: I like it <laughs> 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 I like the stretch. They're more clothes are more comfortable now.
0: If you say uh, for me, I don't like stretch. I, I find stretch like Fine. it gets clingy and sweaty and ugh. anyway. We should have a numbers round. Um Elizabeth, what's your number?
2: Uh, my number is seventy nine million, and that's dollars, and that's the amount Jeff Bezos just paid for the mansion next to his existing mansion in Indian Creek which uh, has been referred to as the Wait, is that the
0: one in, in Georgetown? Wait, no, where is that? No, 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 that? Indian Creek. Where's uh, that? What state the, is that?
2: It is Florida. It is the it I is didn't the, know. Oh, I didn't know Jim Bezos had a place in Florida. This is the famous uh, little man-made island off of Miami where all the billionaires oh, live. They refer to it as right. billionaire bunker. I, I think of it more as billionaire containment unit. But...
0: Um, and he, 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 just, he, <laughs> he just didn't want anyone too close to him.
2: I think that that's the general that's idea. There are only 41 properties on the island, and they're all pretty much owned by people like Jeff Bezos.
0: Is that where Jared and Ivanka are yeah, as well?
2: Yeah, Ivanka has a place there too. Oh,
0: bless him. <laughs> um, my number is zero, which is the... Number of dollars the Museum of Modern Art paid for its Refik Anadol piece. I don't know if you guys have been to MoMA recently, but for the past year or so, um, they've had... Refik Anadol is this um, Turkish artist who does these incredibly popular uh, screens, high-def screens, where they move and it's all AI-generated. And if you put a five-year-old in front of it they will stay mesmerized for hours. Um, And you see them often in, um, you know, places like Times Square or Brigadier Circus and stuff like that. Anyway, he managed to get one of these things into MoMA and, like, rebrand himself as a sort of high artist. And it became incredibly popular among, especially the younger crowd at MoMA. And now it has entered the permanent collection, and it's this big, expensive work. Um, And he put out this tweet basically saying i'm so proud i'm finally you know in moma and many thanks to paolo antonelli and everyone at moma who made this happen and it is difficult and expensive and laborious for anything to enter the permanent collection so it's kind of impressive that he did that um but what's fascinating is the way that the price paid by moma was zero dollars right like they they didn't even, they didn't want to pay for it. They didn't need to pay for it. He was more than happy to give it to them for free because, you know, being in MoMA is worth so much to him.
2: Well, I also think, you know, artists who end up with whatever you think about the piece with work that's especially crowd-pleasing and successful because of it are sometimes worried that they won't be taken seriously is as, as which, which, which in
0: Anadol's case is 100% the case. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not easy to find art world sophisticates who think that he's a great artist.
1: Yeah, museum as marketing—marketing marketing for artists—is obviously what the, what a museum is, actually. So that yeah. makes complete sense that it would be zero dollars. Although
2: I enjoyed the piece, I you know, and I'm not five, so I think <laughs> I, although I did the we, first we time. All, I, we all
0: have an inner five-year-old, Elizabeth. The
2: first time I saw it, I did to be fair, text a friend of mine and say we should take an edible and go sit in front of this thing. <laughs>
0: uh, Emily, what's your number?
1: My number is $1,312. That is, starting last week, that is the size of the check that is getting mailed out to every Alaskan in the state. Oh, is this the
0: dividend, the oil dividend?
1: This is the oil dividend this year. It's around $1,300. Last year, it was like $3,200 because um, Russia invaded Ukraine and oil prices shot up so much. Um, and I was reading this piece in the AP about it, and it's, it's really interesting that the history here. I mean, this started in 1982, and um, it used to be like a pretty clear cut formula, and the check would go out. But now the um, Alaskan Congress kind of argues about how much is going to go out to individuals versus how much of the money are they going to use, you know, to pay for education or you know other stuff, other, cit- um, other services for citizens. So it's one of these like which is better kind of situations. But Alaskans really depend on that money to make ends meet and all kinds of sales go on in the state, you know, when the money starts getting mailed out, you know, with stores trying to draw in people to spend money there, to spend their checks there. So it's
0: kind it's, of fun. it's really the longest and I mean it's for, we've basically got 40 years of empirical evidence of what happens when an entire state implements the universal basic income. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not enough to live on, obviously. No one's going to be able to mm-hmm. live on $1,300 every six months. But it, we have so much evidence of it doing just a profound amount of good in Alaska in a million ways, large and small, in a way that, like, centralized government spending kind of can't because you can't anticipate individual people's needs. Um, we are going come next month. We're going to have... Um, Rory Stewart on this show, I'm going to have a much longer talk about um, unconditional cash transfers, but this is really the, the poster child for these things in America. And it's super yeah. interesting that it happens in a red state in a, and in a country where these ca- unconditional cash transfers are, most, are generally unpopular on the right.
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting though because I mean I'm generally kind of a fan of the universal basic income, the concept of mailing out checks, all of that, but it does seem like in Alaska they may have they're leaning in so hard to mailing out the checks that some government services are going underfunded and you kind of wonder about that balance. Like if if a government makes the choice to send out money to individuals, then it, if it's cutting back on the kinds of services that only a government can provide like education, then that might not be like the idyllic thing that people make it out to be, you know, like I, there's no I think what we personal need income to, tax in yeah, the state. There's think, no sales tax in the state. Like I, I'm not sure that it's the greatest thing ever that Alaskans are getting checks. If like, kids aren't getting like great, aren't able to go to great schools or, you know, things yeah, like that. I, mean, that's not shared really the, resources.
2: I would say that's not really the the fault of, you know, UBI style programs. I do think that particularly on the right, Republican politicians will use any kind of UBI to as an excuse to cut spending. Sure. But they're not even sure. using
0: the UBI as an excuse to cut spending. Like they don't even need an excuse to cut spending. This is a very, very deeply red state. Well, not deeply red. It's pretty red. Um it's a pretty red state and the and it is very much ruled by the Republican Party. And if you look at any red state, they're going to cut back on on those kind of expenditures. Like that is it's not like they need UBI as an excuse to do that. They will do that regardless. And there's very That's little true. evidence that like that the money that currently goes out in checks would otherwise go to um uh education or anything else you know rather than just like winding up in tax cuts anyway on that note i think that's it for us this week um many thanks to patrick Ford for producing many thanks to all of you guys for continuing to write in on slate money at slate.com and we'll be back next week with another slate money